And so uh, there's some issues that I've been wrestling with and trying to figure out in my own mind. And I don't know that I've figured it all out yet, but I'm going to share with you some of the things and some of the conclusions that I've been coming to as I wrestle with some of these issues. Because when we look at religious liberty, it's not a cut and dried thing. There's a lot of factors that go into when you look at liberty, especially when liberties conflict. One person's liberty can conflict with the, somebody else's presumed liberty as well. And so when you deal with these things, it's very complicated. So I hope it's not too complicated. We're not going to get into a lot of legal issue because I am not an attorney. I'm a pastor. And so we're going to use the Bible and spirit of prophecy primarily. And so that's what, that's what we're going to look at. But just good to be here, and thank you for your warm welcome. And uh, let's go ahead and we'll begin with a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we're just grateful for your goodness. We thank you that we can come and study and think about these issues. And we thank you for the warnings that you get us, that how these issues are going to surface more in the future. And so we pray you'll be with us this afternoon, and you'll give us wisdom and understanding. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You know, when you think of liberty, liberty is one of our most cherished rights in the Western world, isn't it? You know, we talk about, we think about it, it's ingrained, it's, it's put in our, in our foundational documents as a fundamental right. We hold these truths to be self-evident, right? That all men are created equal and endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, among them life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, right? And so liberty is highly cherished today. But religious liberty in particular, and other liberties as well, but religious liberty is very challenged today as well. Every year there's a report that is put out. This is the United States Commission on International Religious Freedom. And there's various uh, changes that take place from year to year in these reports. But about 64 nations are categorized as having high or very high restrictions on liberty. Now, 64, that's about a third of the countries of the world. Not quite, but somewhere in that vicinity. 80 countries have an official or a favored religion. Now, I want to put religious perspective, religious liberty in a global perspective here, because for most of the people in the world, religious liberty is something that is a dream and not a reality. In fact, of those countries, actually I have, this is a map from the same report, and the red countries that are highlighted are those of the most concern, and the orange are of concern, but not quite as intensive concern. 70% of the world population, when you look at this map, live in high or very high restrictions on liberty. 70%. That is almost three out of every four people in this world that live in an area that there is high or very high restrictions on their religious liberty. And so there's two categories that they look at. One is government restrictions and then social hostilities. And then they'll rank countries. I'm not sure it's exactly this report, but maybe some different reports. They'll rank countries. Japan and Brazil, at least at one time, were ranked as some of the highest. Saudi Arabia and Pakistan were at the worst as far as restrictions of liberty. Russia has gotten higher on the, well, has gotten worse on that list. Uh, as you can see, it's listed in red here because proselytizing, preaching, praying, and disseminating religious materials are only allowed, out or not allowed, outside of specially designated places. And so that means if you're not in one of these designated areas, basically you cannot practice your faith at all. And so religious liberty in particular is challenged in the world today. But I would suggest that liberty is one of the highest valued things that God has given to us. Liberty was one of the, and you could say it was the first gift that God gave to man. Why would I say that? We say it's the Sabbath or marriage, right? But God made us 
free moral agents with liberty to choose or not to choose, right? God gave us religious liberty in the Garden of Eden by who he made us. You look at the Ten Commandments. Before God gets into the Ten Commandments, the first thing he says is, I am the Lord who brought you out of the house of bondage, right? And so in the Ten Commandments, the first words are dealing with liberty. One of the first reasons God gives for calling his people out of Egypt was so that they could serve him. You go down through sacred history, the Reformation. Liberty was a major issue in the Reformation. And so liberty is something that is highly prized by God. But yet, liberty is challenged in the world in which we live today. These are some of the countries of particular concern and then special watch list. The countries of particular concern there are the red and then the special watch list are the orange. Statement from the Acts of the Apostles, page 68 and 69. This principle we in our day are firmly to maintain. The banner of truth and religious liberty held aloft by the founders of the gospel church and by God's witnesses during the centuries have that have passed since then has in this last conflict been committed to, what does it say? Our hands. So what are we to hold? The banner of truth and liberty, right? We have been bequeathed a banner of truth and religious liberty. And so we are not only to give truth, we are also to uphold and promote religious liberty as well. But not only is it challenged in the world, it's a challenge to try to, in some instances, understand what is religious liberty. Because there's competing ideas of religious liberty. And we're going to unpack this more. But if you look at, if you talk to one person or if you read an article from one particular slant, they're going to have a particular bias of religious liberty. And you talk to another person or another slant or read an article from another slant, and it is going to have a different bias of religious liberty. And so a journey that I am on and that I'm sharing some of what I'm trying to figure out in this journey is I don't want my views, my understanding of religious liberty to be based on this bias or this bias or any bias. I want to know, can we find a biblical basis, a basis based on the Bible and spirit of prophecy for religious liberty? And so that's what I want to try to understand is what is religious liberty? How can we understand it today? Now, I want to think about a little bit. I believe that one of the first gift God gave to us was liberty because he made us as free moral agents. But what was the, what was one of the major attacks of the devil in the great controversy? Could it be on liberty as well? I want to read a couple statements here. This is from Patriarchs and Prophets, speaking of the devil, Lucifer in heaven, for he himself was determined never again to acknowledge the authority of Christ. The only course remaining for him and his followers, he said, was to, what does it say? Assert their liberty. What was the devil claiming in his rebellion against God? He was saying, I need to assert my liberty. Their only course was to assert their liberty and gain by force the, re- <coughs> the rights which had not been willingly accorded them. The devil felt like his religious liberties were restricted, and so he rebelled thinking he was going to assert his liberty. Now, obviously, we know the devil's view of liberty is and was wrong. But it's very interesting to me that he was claiming 
that he was going to assert his liberty here. Another statement. This is great controversy. He claimed that in aspiring to greater power and honor, he was not aiming at self-exaltation, but was seeking to, what does it say? Secure liberty for all the inhabitants of heaven, that by this means they might attain to a higher state of existence. The devil was promising greater liberty. Now this is super ironic when we think about it, isn't it? The great, the re great controversy, the rebellion that we are in against the just and fair government of God The devil was seeking to assert his liberty and was claiming to secure liberty for all. Now, is this true liberty? No, this is the liberty that we studied about during church service where the Jews said, we've never been in, liber in bondage to anyone, right? And what did Jesus say? He that commits sin is a slave of sin. And so the devil is promising a false liberty. God is giving a true liberty. Is it any wonder that there's confusion about liberty in the world today? It goes back as far as we can go back. And so the devil has challenged liberty. And historically, man has desired liberty, but not granted liberty. Early Christian persecution, and then what did the Christians start to do? Persecute. They desired liberty for themselves, but then they did not give liberty to others. Protestants got freedom, but tragically, they were Protestants that did not give liberty. And there were others that, there were those that Protestants, not as many, but there were some that were killed because of their differing beliefs from Protestants. The pilgrims came to the United States because they wanted liberty and freedom. Did they give liberty and freedom? No. Do you see the pattern here? Where a desire for liberty for ourselves, but not granting liberty to those that are different from us. It happened in early Christianity. It happened in Protestantism. It happened here. You can look to contemporary examples. The Taliban, for example, wanted freedom for their faith, but not for other faiths. And you have it playing out in a microcosm here in the United States. You have, for example, free, the Freedom From Religion Foundation that once is, promotes agnosticism and atheism and that, and they want liberty for their viewpoint, but not necessarily for the others. And on the opposite side, you have the religious right that wants freedom for their faith, but not necessarily for others as well. And you can look throughout history. This is the standard human reaction. By the way, we don't have time because I want to look at the broader perspective of liberty. But when we look at the New Testament, we find that the early church is struggling with granting liberty within the church as well. And so when we look to Romans 14, Paul is arguing that we need to give liberty within the church. Now there's different areas, and we're not, I'm not getting into this either. The state has certain areas and rights that it can uh, be involved in, and the church has more, and the family has more, but in each of these areas, there needs to be some allowance for diversity of thought and practice as well. Paul says, for example, in 1 Corinthians 10.29, why is my liberty judged? And so the church has done the same thing. Now, the question I ask, why is it that this has been the historical precedent? Why is it that we always seem to desire liberty but have a hard time giving liberty? I think all we have to do is remember the devil's great controversy in the beginning. He wanted was claiming liberty, but really it was resulting in bondage. And uh, the devil's government is a government of force. Read this statement from Great Controversy 591. God never forces the will or the conscience, but Satan's constant resort to gain control of those whom he cannot otherwise seduce 
is compulsion by cruelty. Through fear or force, he endeavors to rule the conscience and secure homage to himself. The devil's government is a government of force, coercion. God's government is a government of freedom. But the challenge of liberty. What is religious liberty? It seems simple when you just look at it on the surface. But when you start to get a little deeper, you start to wonder, you unrecognize why it's been such a challenge. I want to go through a couple examples here. Through the, the Supreme Court has wrestled with these issues. For example, in should a church that believes in bigamy or polygamy be allowed to follow their religious convictions? In 1879, the Supreme Court said no. That is a not an accurate rendition. I'm just I'm just going through some cases here. Should a Jew be required, this one is probably more familiar to us, but should a Jew be required to close his business on Sunday? 1961, the Supreme Court said, yes, that is for the good of society. Should someone be required to send their 14 to 16-year-old child to school? Pay homage. Do not believe in that. And in 1972, the court said, no, that is religious held conviction. They do not need to send their child to school at that age. Should the Air Force be able to require a Jew to wear the Air Force uniform instead of the skull cap that their faith requires to be worn at all times? In 1986, the Supreme Court said, yes, the Air Force can require that. What about laws banning animal sacrifice? Is that a violation of the free exercise of religion? In 1993, the court said, said yes, the particular laws that were examined were targeting a, a particular religion, and that was unconstitutional. Can courthouses prominently display the Ten Commandments? Now, it varies depending on the case. It varies how it's displayed. But in 2005, the court said no, it cannot prominently display the Ten Commandments. If you can look at the Supreme Court building, they are there, but it's with a bunch of other things. Can someone be denied unemployment benefits for religiously smoking peyote? Court ruled in 1990, yes, they could. That's just an example of a few of the cases. There's many more that you could look at, and those are more historical cases. I didn't get into any that were more contemporary, but of how the court has wrestled with these things. Now, there's other questions. Debates over religious liberty continue today. Should Christians be able to put up crosses and nativity scenes on public property? And... That answer has gone back and forth. And then if that's a question that goes right along with that, and none of these are hypothetical, by the way, should Satanists be able to put up their idols and symbols in the same scenes? Do you see the challenges here? Some of the struggles that when you start thinking about this, you have to think about, can laws forbid harboring undocumented immigrants, undocumented immigrants, when a church believes that it is its religious duty to care for those in need. Should a church-affiliated adoption agency be able to refuse adoption to a gay couple? Should a school be able to segregate racially, segregate racially based on their religious beliefs? Should the First Church of the Cannabis be allowed to smoke marijuana for their religious ceremonies? All of these are real things. I did not make anything up here. 
Should someone be able to refuse to sign a gay marriage certificate? The question when we look at it is what do we do when someone's religious rights conflict with another right? That's really the question here. So let me give you a couple examples of that. A Sikh, one of their retenants of faith is that they carry a knife, a kirpan, with them at all times. Should a Sikh be allowed to carry their kirpan on an airplane? It's their religious belief, but you can see why there's a conflict of other rights as well. Now, different countries have said different things. India has different regulations about that than the United States does. Should an atheist be pressed to say the Pledge of Allegiance? And of course, more uh, commonly to our time and location, should a healthcare professional be allowed to refuse a vaccine when it could endanger those they care for? These are the conflicts of rights and religious rights that we're dealing with. So some are going to define religious liberty one way, others are going to define it another way. And I want to ask a question also, is there a difference between religious liberty, civil liberty, and individual liberty? Is there a difference here? Do we need to recognize some differences? We're not going to unpack that a lot. What should we speak up for and what should we be silent regarding? For most in the world, most in our country, I should say, their views on religious liberty are based on their preferences, not on trying to think through these issues. So, for example, it would be very easy for us to say, well, a Christian symbol should obviously be a part of the nativity scene on a public building, and a Satanist symbol obviously should not, because that's a satanic symbol is repulsive to us, right? And a Christian symbol we identify. And while we would totally disagree with their uh, the faith of another person in this regard, but a Satanist could have the same response toward a Christian symbol and identify with the satanic symbol, right? And so many times our preferences are what determine what we consider as religious liberty or not, <coughs> which is not a safe guide. So the question I'm asking is, can we develop a framework for true religious liberty? And the only place I know to get away from biases is to go to inspiration and to say, does inspiration give us a foundation for understanding what religious liberty is? Now, there's lots of debates that can take place outside of that, but how can we understand from a solid foundation what religious liberty is. I believe that the best statement in religious liberty is given by Jesus in Matthew chapter 22. It's a familiar statement. We all know this statement. Matthew chapter 22. I believe it was one of the, from a social perspective, one of the most revolutionary statements that Jesus made. Now from a... Christian perspective, a statement like, you must be born again, is much more revolutionary. It's much more impactful. But if we just look at it from a social perspective, this could be one of the major revolutionary statements Jesus made. So Matthew 22, verse 21, of course we're familiar with the context here, they were trying to trick Jesus. Actually, we should read 20 and 21. And he said to them, whose image and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's, and he said to them, Render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Don't you love how Jesus answered that question? Do we have to pay taxes or not? Show me a, show me a coin. Well, what, whose picture is on this coin? Caesar's. Yeah. Give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and to God what belongs to God. Jesus said there's a distinction between our obligation to God and to the authority that we live under. 
There's a separation, if you will. There are those, I don't know if you've heard it, I don't know that they've said this recently, but there are major tele-evangelists that have said the separation of church and state is a doctrine of the devil. I believe that it predates, I'm going to show you it predates Thomas Jefferson in a little bit, but it predates all the way back to Jesus, I believe, saying, render to Caesar what is Caesar and to God what is God's is effectively a principle of separation here, of distinction between church and state, distinction between someone's obligation to the government and to God. So I believe this is a very key statement in helping us to understand religious liberty. I want to look at another individual, though, and this individual is um, known as the father of religious liberty to a great extent. I'm going to read a couple statements from Great Controversy about Roger Williams. And we're familiar with the story of Roger Williams. Roger Williams was... If you read about Roger Williams, he's a very interesting individual. And uh, um, he did seem to have trouble getting along with whoever he was with. <laughs> when you look at some of his... Uh, his background. But he, he brought some very key and was revolutionary in some of his concepts as well. Roger Williams, of course, went to Massachusetts, uh, Bay, well, it was, yeah, Massachusetts Bay Colony, Plymouth Bay Colony. And, uh, so he was, then started speaking up against things that were taking place there, the, the, uh, because the pilgrims came there in order to have freedom. But yet, they came to have freedom, but they didn't give freedom. So you had to be a member of the church to be a part of the, the government. And then, if you said things that were not appreciated, then that was not uh, uh, not looked upon well. And so Roger Williams ends up, we are familiar with this story, ends up leaving there in winter and finding refuge among some of the Native American tribes there. Interesting. Not only did he believe in religious liberty, he believed in not stealing land from the Native American people. He believed in purchasing land from them. So Rhode Island was actually purchased uh, from the tribes that he had befriended, which is very very um, beyond his time in that uh, regard as well. But Rhode Island, and it's founded, it takes several, several years uh, for things to congeal there. But I want to read a couple statements and then read a couple things that Roger Williams says. Roger Williams came to the New World, like the early pilgrims, he came to enjoy religious freedom. But he, unlike them, he saw what so few in his time had yet seen, that this freedom was the inalienable right of all, whatever might be their creed. What was Roger Williams' distinction here? His understanding of freedom was not based on freedom for him, but was based on freedom for anyone's religious beliefs. And as an inalienable right, no matter what. Williams, and actually uh, Sister White's quoting from Bancroft, the historian here, Williams was the first person in modern Christendom to establish civil government on the doctrine of the liberty of conscience, the equality of opinions before the law. First person to establish civil government based on the doctrine of liberty of conscience. One more statement, then I want to look at what he says. He there laid the foundation of the first state of modern times that in the fullest sense recognized the right of religious freedom. So, whatever might have been Roger Williams' quirks, did he have an understanding of religious freedom? He did, didn't he? He had an understanding here of religious freedom. And he fought for it. Became the pastor of the first Baptist church in America. And he actually, I haven't been able to find specifically that he kept the Sabbath per se, but he seemed to be aware of it to a certain extent. And so, of course, Roger Williams Church was the first Baptist church. Of course, then there were Seventh-day Baptists that grew from there, and uh, which brought the Sabbath to Adventists as well. So, interesting history. But this is 
a statement that Roger Williams made, and this isn't a complete statement, but this is the main thought. He talks about the hedge or wall of separation between the garden of the church and the wilderness of the world. Now, we're familiar with Thomas Jefferson's statement in, I believe, 1804 to the Danbury Baptist, where he says, effectively making a wall of separation between the church and state. We're familiar with that statement. But this is 150 plus years before that. And Roger Williams says, there's a hedge or a wall between the garden of the church and the wilderness of the world. And if you read and continue to go on with what he says, he felt like if you allow his, he was a pastor, if you combine the two, it destroys the garden of the church. That was his concern. You combine it, it brings hypocrites into the church and destroys the church. It says, let it be forever separate. Another statement. This is from this, uh, you can see that's a, a copy of the bloody tenants. They made titles that were a full paragraph then. But uh, he's debating back and forth with uh, Cotton uh, about getting kicked out of Rhode Island and uh, religious liberty and conscience and things like that. Notice what he says. Freedom was worthy of the name only if it extended to, notice what he says, the paganish, Jewish, Turkish, or anti-Christian. Who does Roger Williams believe deserves religious liberty? Everyone, right? For in 1644, when he wrote this, to say the pagans deserve religious liberty. And the Jews and the Turks and those that are not just not Christians, but are against Christianity, all deserve religious liberty. It's a revolutionary statement. Williams believed in liberty for all. For everyone to be able to believe and practice their religious faith according to their convictions. And so Jesus puts a distinction between the state and the church. Roger Williams says liberty, religious liberty, is for everyone. Now, I want to see if we can find from Ellen White's writings a consistent thought of the religious liberty, a definition of it, that we are particularly to stand for. As I mentioned, there's different types of liberty. Our biggest concern is religious liberty, right? And so, if our biggest concern is religious liberty, we need to consider what that is defined as so that we can speak for that accordingly. So I want to look at several statements here. It's from great number of, not all from great controversy, but this one is. The great principle of religious liberty was not yet understood. By the way, what is a principle? I would define, it's a rule, I would define a principle as something that is always going to be true. It's not an application from it. A, a, the closest example I would give is like a scientific law. Gravity, nobody is going to doubt that if I drop my Bible, what's going to happen, right? Because barring some strange anomaly, the natural laws are going to be into a force and gravity is going to take effect. A principle is something that is true. So in all circumstances, so the great principle of religious liberty was not yet understood though the horrible cruelties which Rome employed against heresy were restored, resorted to, but rarely by Protestant rulers, yet the right of every man to worship God according to the dictates of his own conscience was not acknowledged. Notice she says the, grand, the great principle of religious liberty here is the right of every man to do what? to worship God according to the dictates of his own conscience. She's defining religious liberty here as the right to worship the way you believe with your own conscience before God, 
the way that you should worship. This is in the section, this is, I'm not sure it's the same chapter, but it's, she's also commented on Roger Williams as well, and so it is clearly, he believed that was for everybody. So, right of every man to worship God according to the dictates of his own conscience. This is from Selected Messages, Volume 3, and uh, page uh, 387. Our own land is to become a battlefield on which is to be carried on the struggle for religious liberty. To worship God according to the dictates of our own conscience. Is that very similar wording there? Yeah. And so she says, in our own land, this is what's going to happen. In our own land, there's going to be the struggle, the battlefield, and it will be over religious liberty. But what is that battlefield going to be? Whether to worship God according to the dictates of our own conscience. Another statement here, also from Selected Messages. Thus is manifested the same arbitrary, oppressive power against religious liberty. And notice the grammar here. Freedom to worship God according to the dictates of conscience. As was manifested by the papacy when in the past it persecuted those who dared to refuse to conform with the religious rites and ceremonies of Romanists. Each of those statements we just read identified religious liberty with virtually the same wording. Freedom to worship God according to the dictates of conscience. And here it says, in the past they persecuted those that didn't have the religious rites and ceremonies of Romanists. It appears to me, when I look at, by the way, I should say that there is, there's basically two contexts that she uses religious liberty that I have found. One context is the national context or the international, the, just the regular right that we're looking at right now. The other is religious liberty in the church. So she has a fair amount to say about granting religious liberty in the church as well, which is different from the national context that she has here. But everywhere I, where I'm seeing this, it's Freedom to worship God according to the dictates of conscience. I do not see her getting into the nitty-gritty. I'm not saying we shouldn't. But I don't see her getting into the nitty-gritty of it is the practicing of a particular, your own convictions, is that religious liberty or not? I see her seeing it related to worshiping of God in more of a collective sense according to the dictates of the conscience. I'm not saying that we shouldn't have religious liberty for everything else. We're thankful for the religious liberty that we have. But many people, the majority of people in the world, would be jubilant to be able to simply worship on Sabbath without hiding like we are. And so, worshiping God according to the dictates of the conscience. She doesn't get into the individual conviction, convictions like the skull cap or the kirpan or the vaccine or the zoning laws for churches for the individual religious practices. That's individual liberty that we're granted in this country to a great extent, and I'm very thankful for that. I want to read the next statement here, which is interesting as well. Ever we need to manifest kindness and true courtesy, we may have to plead most earnestly before legislative councils for the right to exercise independent judgment. Now notice here, notice the, the balance. Plead most earnestly, but with kindness and courtesy, right? Is it important when we are asking for liberty that we are pleading with kindness and with courtesy? Many times, how we say what we say is more important than what we say. And so she identifies here with kindness and true courtesy. And then she says, exercise independent judgment. There may be times when we have to exercise 
independent judgment. What does that mean? Go against what we're told we need to. Right? And notice what it's connected to. Exercise independent judgment to worship God according to the dictates of our conscience. She goes back to the same phrase. We, with my, my family, we're reading a book on, uh, well actually, yeah, we are still reading. We haven't finished it yet. The work in the Middle East, uh, as you know, maybe some of you are familiar with it, it's uh, Diamond Ola. She was a young girl that began translating at about 13 years of age and continued working in the Middle East through many different countries for about 40 or 50 years. And, uh, at that time, it was probably less restrictive than it is today. But when they were working in Turkey, they were not allowed to build any new churches, period. And you could not meet in any other area other than a church. And so what do you do? Well you try to figure out if there's another church that you can rent where you could still worship in according to the dictates of your conscience and still be in a church and fit in with the more restrictive requirements than what we have. Now, when that wasn't possible, they continued worshiping in homes very subtly. Subtly is not the right word. Very covertly. You don't stop worshiping God according to the dictates of your conscience. But if there are laws that that you can get around, you don't complain about those laws. You want to focus in on the real issue. Let me give another example here. In the 1880s and early 1890s, in this country, there were states that had Sunday closing laws. I don't know that we have very many states that have. There's still a few states that it might have a little bit on. There's actually the, I believe, at least last I looked at this, the most restrictive county in the United States. It was in New Jersey, right outside of New York City, and they wanted one day without traffic, and so they have very restrictive Sunday opening laws for business. But in the 1880s and 1890s, you had people that were going to jail. And Sister White advised people, don't make an affront to break the Sunday, the law. Don't hang your laundry on the line. Go do missionary work. What was she saying here? She was saying, if you can still worship God on the Sabbath and keep the Sabbath, do that and... Figure out another way. It's not going to violate your conscience to go give Bible studies and to share with people on the Sabbath. You don't have to complain about this. You can turn it into a blessing. But the line comes when we're commanded not to worship God according to the dictates of our conscience. We cannot compromise in that regard. Similar to with the, uh, the plains of Dura. Was it an unjust law that everybody had to come before the idol, before the golden image? It's unjust. But did they come? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? They came. Why? Because it wasn't a violation of their conscience to come, but did they bow? No. We need to recognize that distinction. When it becomes a violation of the commandments of God, to worship God according to the dictates of our conscience, we can't go there. That is the religious liberty that she is talking about. We need to exercise independent judgment about with kindness and true courtesy. Let me skip this. That one. So I need to, need to close. We know from Revelation chapter 13 where this, where we're headed, right? 
the lamb-like beast that speaks like a dragon. And he talked about that this morning. We know where it's going. Everybody is going to unite. By the way, people like to debate today. Well, do we have more to fear from the right or from the left or from whatever? Everybody is going to unite. Right, left, center, and everything in between. And we have a historical precedent for that. In the 1880s, when they were pushing a, 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 the Sunday law, you can, I have a, actually brought a book with me. It's called Holy, Holy Day, Holiday, the American Sunday. There's a professor that did her dissertation on Sunday in America. And there's a lot of documentation there. It was the combination of the churches that were promoting this and were pushing it, the Lord's Day Alliance, the National Reform Association, which, by the way, still exists today, still has similar stated goals of making the United States a Christian nation, and, and the labor unions that wanted a day off for the workers that united together and pushed it and made this a major national issue with the Blair Bill. What brought about its demise, we know that God held back the four winds. From a human perspective, what brought about the demise was the labor unions realized that the churches wanted to force them to go to church on Sunday, and there was a split between the two, and there was never the momentum that moved forward again. Everybody is going to unite. These have one mind. There will be a universal bond, one great harmony, a confederacy of Satan's forces, and shall give their power and strength unto the beast. Thus is manifested the same arbitrary, oppressive power against religious liberty. Notice, again, freedom to worship God according to the dictates of conscience, as was manifested by the papacy. I've been overseas before, and I remember somebody told me, oh, I just heard there's a Sunday law that was passed in the United States. I said, oh, really? I said, well, I don't think so. Well, why not? Somebody told me it was. I said, well, according to great controversy, it's going to be popular demand that is going to lead to a Sunday law. Notice the statement here. Even in free America, rulers and legislators, in order to secure public favor, will yield to the popular demand for a law enforcing Sunday observance. Liberty of conscience, which has cost so great a sacrifice, will no longer be respected. There is going to be a grassroots movement of people appealing crying for there to be a Sunday law. Why? Probably because we need to get back to God and all these different things. But it's going to bring everybody together. You are going to know when this happens. <laughs> now, do things happen? Do things? We're, we know things, are, things can take place now. Uh, things can be uh, moving in the dark. But according to this, it's going to be popular demand. Everybody's going to be united together. Well, not everybody, but popular demand. There's going to be a groundswell movement calling for this. Liberty of conscience, religious freedom. The devil challenged it in the beginning, in heaven. The devil claimed he was giving true liberty but was actually securing bondage. And throughout history, we have a very, very poor record of granting liberty. Humanity, because of our selfish natures, wants liberty for ourselves, but not for others. And in the final crisis, that liberty will be removed from God's commandment-keeping people. But we must stand strong then. And we must recognize and not be diverted 
Not saying we don't stand for others when their individual rights are affected. We should. But we need to recognize that the real issue of religious liberty is not the side issues that we can get diverted on. The real issue is when, prophetically speaking, there's going to be compulsion to worship, not worship God, the way we know, according to the Bible, we should. And we can come to the plains of Dura, and we can be there, but we cannot bow down. But the only way that we're going to be able to stand for liberty then is to experience true liberty now, right? Statement we read this morning, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall what? Make you free. We have to be allowing Jesus to set us free and give us his spirit of liberty now for others, not just for ourselves, but for others as well. Now, because truly it's the Lord's presence that gives true liberty. We read this statement as well. Now the Lord is the spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. May we have the Lord's presence with us individually, that we can experience his liberty and that we can grant liberty to others as well. And may we stand when the crisis comes. May we stand like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did, and not bow down. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we're grateful. Grateful for the gift of liberty that you have given to each one of us. We thank you that for even those that live in oppressive environments, that you have still given them the liberty of conscience and that they can choose to serve you. And Lord, we pray that you will be with those that have their liberty restricted, that you will give them your grace. We pray that you will help us to experience your presence, your liberty, and to be willing to grant that liberty to others as well. And we pray that you will make us strong to stand for you. And we thank you in Jesus' name. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.